0: I never had any children none of my siblings had any children either that I know of so we are the end of the family line we will not be passing on the family trauma
1: hello you are listening to NPE stories this is a podcast where NPEs can share their story Welcome to episode 110. This episode is called My Mother's Ghosts and we are speaking with John today. Hi John. Hi Lily. <laughs> we spent an evening in a writing webinar, didn't we?
0: Oh, that's Do- right. Do you remember yes. I
1: just remembered that. I don't know if yeah. it was last year or months ago cuz this year mm-hmm. has Kind of just flown together, mm, yeah. but but are you still are you still writing? Because you sent me this great article. I want to post. Yeah,
0: I'm still writing, and I've learned that writing is rewriting. <laughs> That's what I do. Just rewriting everything all the time.
1: <laughs> well, if people are interested, let me first point them towards the article you just sent me, which I posted on my Facebook page, NPE Stories. It's called Are You You? The Complexity mm-hmm. of Discovering Your Biological Parents. Mm-hmm. It was really good. I re- I thank you for sending that to me. I shared it with you know hundreds of people on the on the Great. Facebook page and yes. Great. So send me more in the future. I loved it. Okay. <laughs> so you are an NPE and I haven't heard your story yet. Although I've seen you around the forums. And I've actually seen Mm -hmm. you on many different NPE websites. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) But let's hear your story today. So why don't you take it from the beginning and um, let us know what your original family was like and and how you found out?
0: Okay. Um, Here we go. (laughs) So I was the third of four children, a middle child, My siblings and I fell into the classic roles or strategies of children in a dysfunctional family. My sister, the eldest, was the super achiever or hero. My older brother was the rebel and scapegoat. I withdrew, feeling abandoned and disconnected as a lost child. And my younger brother provided some comic relief as the mascot or clown and prankster. I was called a mommy's boy, and my younger brother was daddy's boy, his buddy. We all looked similar enough, so we never questioned our parentage. Dad, technically my birth certificate father, born in 1904, was 31 years older than my mother, who was born in 1935. Mom was informally adopted by her Irish Catholic grandmother, who I discovered through research had been divorced from a steel worker and living in various boarding houses on the north side of Pittsburgh. Mom took her grandmother's first and last name as it was written on her baptismal certificate, and she was raised as an only child during the Depression and World War II. She never knew her mother, but had met her mother once in a psychiatric ward, and she never met her father, but had a name on a birth certificate she'd obtained later in life. We took her history as an adoptee for granted and didn't fully appreciate the impact, the unaddressed chronic stress, and complex trauma had on her and the rest of her family. My mother's grandmother died the year I was born, so I never met her. How my parents met was a bit of a mystery. It was likely at a hotel between Altoona and Pittsburgh, where my mother worked for her Uncle Tom, the hotel manager. In my research, I discovered that dad owned a piece of that hotel, confirming rumors of his past power and influence. There was plenty of drama in my family of origin and a sense of uncertainty. Both of my parents had big personalities. They were drinkers and smokers. Mom smoked three packs a day. Dad was a divorced workaholic from the rural heartland of Pennsylvania with a long and successful history in the construction business. He was the oldest of 10 children and got as far as eighth grade in school. He, his brothers, and his carpenter father. Started a construction company in the late 1920s, which steadily grew through the 1950s. There were over 1,500 people on his payroll by then. They built schools and hospitals, gas stations, and among other larger projects, most of the toll booths on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in 1940. Dad had lost that business and everything by the time I was born in 1960. All I had left were the stories and photographs of his past success. He was able to find work helping others to run their construction businesses. I remember lots of yelling and screaming by my mother, mostly about money late into the night as a kid, walking on eggshells during the day, some physical violence by my mother and her feeling overwhelmed, at the same time trying to make everything look normal. I was terrified of all five feet, two of her, and was generally compliant, wanting to please her and not upset her. There was nothing typical about my family except that we were typically dysfunctional. I wasn't a good student at school. I was anxious, messy, had trouble learning to read and had sloppy handwriting. I was bad at math and games like chess. Sometimes I couldn't trust my own perceptions. There was a sense of impermanence that things would not stay the same. Six times six might not always be 36. I wrestled with learning how to tell time, how to make sense of my world, maybe a little more than most kids. This wasn't just about my social identity, but something deeper, what it fundamentally meant to be an individual, to have my sense of self validated. I struggled with emotions, especially anger like my mother. I couldn't tell you about my feelings or what I wanted because feelings didn't seem to matter much. I failed at learning how to play piano, but pardon the pun, learned how to play second base in Little League Baseball. Learning how to trust my own perceptions a little better. Fielding, connecting bat to ball, swinging and missing more often than not, but I grew to become more consistent with practice. My hero was the legendary Roberto Clemente of the Pittsburgh Pirates. The year Clemente tragically died, I had a little accident. I was 12 and had fallen off a garage roof playing hide-and-seek with my brothers in the dark. I remember the full moon just before Thanksgiving. My brothers said they thought they heard a door slam. I probably had a concussion after my body hit the pavement. And at that moment, I couldn't walk without excruciating pain. So a neighbor, an older teen, carried me home to our back door in secret, and I crawled up the stairs to bed. Mom found out in the morning and took me to the hospital. Two slipped discs and a back brace for six months. No more sports. Of course, I appeared like any other little boy on the outside. On the inside, I felt like a ghost, like I wasn't completely there. Mom had attended a private Catholic school for girls, likely on scholarships, and graduated high school in 1953. Her penmanship was immaculate. She was a big believer in formal education, having books all over the house, and she pushed me hard. One Christmas when I was about eight, I got mostly books, which felt like a cruel joke. I was heartbroken and cried. She looked at me dead in the eyes and said, you're going to learn how to read. So I was pushed through school from first grade on. I didn't like academics much, but I loved learning. I had a certain hutzpah for facts and was exposed to highly educated professionals in my eclectic Pittsburgh neighborhood. I performed well on a locally televised quiz show with some of my middle school classmates. Walking to school one day, a stranger stopped me on the street and asked if I was that kid who answered all those questions on the show. I said I was, and he thanked me for representing the community so well that he was proud. I felt validated. I mattered. My celebrity was short-lived though, and I'm not as good as I used to be at games like Jeopardy. At 14, uh, Neighborhood friend had invited me to work at a local Chinese restaurant, washing dishes to make cash under the table. I wasn't above doing hard work. Mom was pretty much out of the house by then. My mother had struggled with parenting and often resorted to physical discipline. She was in over her head. At the same time, she thought of herself as cosmopolitan, sophisticated. I learned to read her facial expressions and all she had to do was look at me i also learned every adult swear word from my mother by the time i was 4 my older brother to this day still keeps the heavy blue glass ashtray or candy dish that she threw at his head sending him to the hospital for stitches mom played the piano and you would see a black baby grand in our living room as soon as you walked through our front door i wasn't much of a musician i was more visual My favorite movie was the original 1963 black and white version of Lord of the Flies. It was the first movie that expressed most closely what I felt in my family. College was expected, and I followed my sister to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, all paid for by loans. There was little money. My parents had separated by then, mom moving out and living with a mystery drinking partner. She had been going out and coming home without explanation. First a half day then whole days, and then several days in a row in the 1970s. Dad was mostly out of the house working, often stopping at a bar before coming home. He was more married to his work than anyone else. My mother was also a rageaholic, and most family activities were unsettling. So when Mom left, the screaming stopped, and we felt relief. We lost our house when I was in high school, and moved to a nearby apartment after my sophomore year. Mom was not given a key to our new place, so she could no longer come and go as she pleased, walking in and out of our lives. Dad and my brothers then moved to a cheaper place in the suburbs my senior year. My sister had left for college. Dad was still working and worked well into his 80s. My senior year was probably the worst of my young life, spent in a strange high school without friends. Older brother left for a brief stint in the army. My younger brother begged and cajoled dad to move back to our old neighborhood. They found a house for rent, and my younger brother graduated with his friends from the high school he had originally attended in the city while I was away at college. I had barely graduated, needing to take remedial courses in an extra semester. I did my share of abusing alcohol there, too, like many students. The drinking age was 18. I earned a degree in journalism and advertising. To this day, I have an aversion to sales and marketing. After college, I was paralyzed with self-doubt and lived with my dad and younger brother. I shut down emotionally and found part-time restaurant jobs through the 1980s. My younger brother earned a business degree and tried working as a retail manager for a year or two. He was also a weightlifter, an amateur bodybuilder. He soon began having more serious symptoms, psychotic breaks, and hallucinations under all the pressures and quit his job. He would go missing for days and was eventually diagnosed with the bipolar type of schizoaffective disorder. He also abused alcohol. He spent stretches of time in psychiatric hospitals and sometimes jail and did some part-time work. I was lucky to avoid hospitals and jails, not that I was any healthier. I simply grew more depressed. My sister had moved out and traveled in Europe, lived in Italy for a few years, and had come back to Pittsburgh, having figured out how to live on her own. I left the restaurant jobs, but wasn't doing much better than the minimum wage. My sister encouraged me to start attending Al-Anon family groups and see a therapist. That's when I began to address my mental health and became more aware of feeling judged, demoralized and ashamed. After about a decade of inner healing work, which included groups as well as individual therapy with a warm and caring woman, I committed to take ownership of my part in my own pain, sorting out what was mine and what was not, and to make big changes in my life. I was learning to give credit where credit is due to myself when I earned it through my own hard work and To others who were there for me. I quit smoking, having smoked since I was a young teenager, and applied to grad school in my mid-30s. I had done some creative writing, a little poetry, and used drawing and therapy as a way to start expressing and sorting out my feelings and thought I might be a writer. I began to explore digital photography as therapy just before 9-11. Creative expression was a large chunk of my therapy helping me to feel more connected to my body and less like a ghost. I was learning that I was not responsible for how my mother reacted to me and that creativity is a threat to a closed system. I had taken a more formal drawing class than, than an expository writing class in the 90s to build my confidence, but writing felt too exhausting for me to do every day. The visual arts were more my style my nonverbal expressions using a camera felt more natural. I could literally do photography all day long and often did. There was no film to buy or to develop, so I felt free to create to my heart's content, began documenting everything around me. The emotional themes emerging in my work ranged from loss and abandonment to restoration and recovery. I had done so much heavy lifting in my formal therapy that I began to see the possibility of a career in counseling and psychology. Without risk, there is no growth, as my therapist would say. In grad school, I took off like the space shuttle. I was an A student for the first time in my life. I was motivated, could see a future, and felt as if I was the captain of my own ship, the wheel firmly in my hands. The wind was in my sails, and I was off. I was hired right out of my internship At an inner city middle school by the manager of a community mental health program who was impressed with my work with children. He observed while I encouraged students to play with intriguing little three-dimensional puzzles that they could manipulate with and figure out using their own two hands. I finally found meaningful work and felt a deep sense of relief. Unfortunately, my mother's health declined while I was in grad school. About 10 years earlier, when I was an undergrad in Wisconsin, mom had a bit of good luck. She and her partner, who was an unemployed roofer on welfare, were invited to Harrisburg as finalists in a Pennsylvania lottery drawing. The lottery officials spun a great wheel of fortune there, and her partner was announced the winner. $1,000 a week for life. My mother reportedly cried and was quoted in a local magazine saying, we didn't come here to lose. After taxes, it worked out to $800 a week, and they legally married the following year. Mom again found economic security. But her new husband drank himself to death within three years and died without a will. I attended his funeral. He was buried wearing a whimsical dark blue tie printed with little white money bags. Someone had also read the opening of A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Her husband had also had some distant relatives, nieces from Canada. Their mother had sued for half the estate since he had legally married after hitting the lottery. Mom was left with just enough to pay the bills. She constantly worried about money. After her second husband died, she found herself in rehab and The mid 1980s for alcohol abuse. She was encouraged to move to a halfway house by her treatment team, but she declined. I attended a family session there where I learned more about alcoholism and family mental health. I moved in with her for a few months, begrudgingly, while in grad school in 1995. She was living alone, anorexic, and unable to care for herself after a few mini strokes and heart bypass surgery in and out of the hospital multiple times. In addition to her complex childhood trauma as an adoptee, she had insulin dependent diabetes as well as heart and lung disease and probably liver disease from the alcohol. It was all too much and she died in 1996 at the same hospital where I had been born. My sister had called that morning. All I could hear was her sobbing and I knew mom was gone. I had visited her just a day or two before. We had a moment when I sat next to her propped up on her bed. She was unable to speak due to the strokes and I laid my head on her shoulder. I felt her fingers gently combing through my hair as a younger mother might have done to her little boy. After my sister's call, I rushed to the hospital to see mom on her deathbed. She looked more peaceful there than she ever did in life. She was 61 years old. I wrote her a eulogy. It was hard to get through that while feeling like I was being pulled down a bottomless black well in the center of my chest. We were devastated and could not express our grief. I somehow find a few words because I couldn't imagine saying nothing. I had to write something. I did my best. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing badly, as my therapist would say. This was my role in the family when mom died. It was what I could contribute. Mom was never able to quit smoking and never got to see me finish grad school, but I recall discussing with her about having a clearer sense of my future and that she didn't have to worry about me. She never expressed much regret, but I think she regretted not being a better parent. There's no such thing as perfect parents. As difficult as it is to accept, she did the best she could with the cards she had been dealt. Dad died in the summer of 2001. I wrote a eulogy for him too, and ran a silent slideshow of his old construction photographs from a laptop at the funeral home. What a life he had. There was lots of laughter at his funeral. We expected that he would go before her, but he was a tough old guy, a colorful character. He would sing songs, tell stories, recite popular poetry from the last century, and tell off-color jokes. He had earned a pilot's license and flew his own airplane, flying to his many construction projects in the region. He claimed to have survived five forced landings. A true pilot never uses the word crash. More than once, he would buzz our childhood home, swooping down like a hawk the plane rocking back and forth and then soaring off up into the clouds. He died just before his 97th birthday. That crushed my younger brother who had been his devoted caregiver for over a decade. Dad's best friend and loyal co-pilot. My brother then had another relapse and once again landed in the hospital. He was able to get back on his feet after dad died. but after that, I wasn't able to work much, retiring on disability before age 40. Eventually, I, I learned to live on my own and became a psychotherapist, working mostly with individuals specializing in those with a history of abuse or neglect and trauma. Romantic relationships were difficult, but I got lucky and met a woman, a warm and loving woman in 2013 and officially married in 2017 at the age of 56. We were both around the same age. I never had any children. None of my siblings had any children either that I know of. So we are the end of the family line. We will not be passing on the family trauma. My younger brother died suddenly in 2018 related to his alcohol abuse. That was also the year of the mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in my Pittsburgh neighborhood. These events had me contemplating my own mortality and family history. DNA tests became more affordable and the history more accessible through the internet. So in 2019, I took the plunge. Immediately, I found a few of my mother's relatives, her dearest and closest cousin, and another cousin, one of her Uncle Tom's daughters. I didn't see any of my dad's. I thought his family simply didn't test. My sister had tested also and had similar odd results. Then I noticed our numbers were a little too low for full siblings. Our ethnicity ratios were significantly different. I was 80% Slovak and had no idea where that came from. I first imagined mom had become pregnant with another man's child, and my sister was the result, leading my parents to marry in haste. But I could never find a marriage certificate. My parents appeared to have had a common-law marriage. Then we had my older brother test. He had matched some of my dad's family while my sister and I did not. My sister was 25% Slovak and my brother 18%. We were all half siblings and only my older brother belonged to dad. More research showed that my mother's grandmother was indeed part Slovak and that my mother's likely biological father, the name on her birth certificate was born in that region of Eastern Europe. We had a little Irish, maybe 10%, though we identified as at least half Irish. We suspect my younger brother was dad's as well, but he had died before we all tested. It took me a few days to realize that my sister and I were not only half siblings. We each had totally different biological fathers, and neither of them could be dad. That's when the penny dropped, and I admitted that it wasn't just my sister. I had a mystery biological father. My two brothers were likely the only full siblings to each other. I wasn't so much shocked as mildly surprised and relieved given the age difference in my parents. My sister was heartbroken. I was also a little disappointed that I wouldn't be inheriting dad's longevity. The DNA explained and confirmed so much of my childhood troubles. Everything clicked into place like a giant Rubik's cube, like the three-dimensional puzzles I had played with doing therapy with children. Validation. Then I wanted to learn everything I could as quickly as I could to figure out my biological father. I took a second test with 23andMe and uploaded my DNA to other websites. I was able to identify my biological father's family and research their history. I narrowed down my suspect's the two brothers, both deceased, they were mostly Slovak. That explained my 80% Slovak ethnicity, which is concentrated in the Pittsburgh region due to the coal and steel industries. I discovered that many of my mother's Irish relatives worked at a massive steel mill called the Tube Works, the National Tube Company, in McKeesport, outside of Pittsburgh, down the Monongahela River. My Slovak relatives worked mostly in Pennsylvania coal mines, but I found Irish and Slovak relatives working in both the coal and steel industries. With more detective sleuthing on the Internet, I found the name and an old address of the only child, a son for one of the brothers. He could be my half-brother, so I handwrote him a letter explaining where I was in my process. He called me within a week, and we talked for over an hour. He wasn't interested in testing and cautioned me before telling some family stories about how his father died when he was just a toddler and how he placed a little toy car in his father's casket. He didn't have nice things to say about his uncle, my other possible biological father. I found his father's death certificate long before the call, and it was disturbing. He had accidentally killed himself while cleaning a shotgun in his suburban Pittsburgh kitchen. His son said he wasn't sure if it was an accident, a suicide, or a murder, and suspected his uncle. His uncle was a small-time real estate developer, and my possible half-brother said his uncle cheated his mother out of money because his father was legally part owner of his uncle's business. He had confronted his uncle with a legal document. Lawyers were called, and he was able to secure some money for his mother. We joked that I may have been conceived in the back of a big Buick on New Year's Eve, 1959, since his father liked Buick Buicks and the timing fit within the range of my birthday. He admitted that we could be half brothers, but his money was on his uncle being my biological father. He suggested that we meet in October 2020 since he planned to be in Pittsburgh for a wedding, but COVID put a hold on that and we never met. I wasn't motivated to explore relationships with that side of the family any further. Since then, I tried to learn as much as I could about NPEs. I scoured the internet, reading everything I could. I dove deeper into the, uh, the science of genetic genealogy and historical family research, using census data, birth and death certificates, obituaries, focusing more on my mother's side. I found jaw-dropping newspaper articles related to my mother's mother. As well as her maternal grandfather. So much loss after loss. For example, my mother's mother went missing around Christmas time in 1939. Her divorced father, the steelworker, had died suddenly that summer at age 53. That fact wasn't in the newspaper. There was a crude photo and a precise description of her and her clothing. I don't know what happened to her. A few of her distant cousins had died tragically in bizarre accidents, one in an elevator shaft in downtown Pittsburgh on a summer afternoon in 1931. The following year, another wagered that he could swim across the Allegheny River, leaping off the Sixth Street Bridge uh, with his arms tied to his sides. He drowned within uh, about 20 feet from shore. In a 1925 article, Mom's maternal grandfather, the steelworker, had found an abandoned baby in the back of his parked car near his home. I can't prove a direct connection, but mom's grandmother filed for a divorce by 1927. None of my immediate family knew anything about these historical incidents. Dad was easier to research since he lived a generation earlier and had that family business. There was a well-documented history of his drinking and sketchy driving, going back to Prohibition. In the 1920s through the late 1960s and at least half a dozen related legal issues. He was acquitted every single time. Over the past year, i had been learning more about intergenerational trauma and epigenetics, how extreme stress can be passed down through generations maternally in utero. I connected with other NPEs in the Facebook groups. I came to understand that my mother was not only a chronically traumatized adoptee, but recognized her in the shared stories from women who are NPEs. I saw that I have a unique perspective being an NPE as well as the son of an NPE and as a practicing psychotherapist who had been working with childhood trauma. Then something else happened. In the summer of 2021, I had a new match on 23andMe, who appeared to be a maternal relative and thought she might help to pinpoint my biological father and my mother's father. I was deep into the research of my mother's family and at the time and had received two documents from my sister offering more clues to my mother's history. One, a passport with what was clearly her photo and two, her birth certificate. Both generated within two days of each other in November 1956 and both with a strange name she had never used in life. She was 21 and needed the passport to travel overseas with dad as his secretary, according to her passport, and she needed a birth certificate to get the passport. The name on the passport was required to match the name on the birth certificate. Mom had a kind of secret identity all along. She just never used her birth name. She always used her grandmother's name. It looks like dad had expedited the passport process, in just two days with his connections in Washington. His company was in the middle of building a runway at a U.S. Naval Air Base in southern Spain that year, and my sister, mom's first child, was born a year or so after that trip to Spain. The match of 23andMe was a woman from Colorado about my age who was adopted and looking for her mother. She agreed to let me help her and had just obtained her birth certificate from Pennsylvania with her mother's name. She asked if I recognized the name. I did. The name matched my mother's dearest cousin, who was mom's closest confidant when mom started her family, and her cousin had come to live with us for several months when I was just a baby. So I had frantically searched for her current address and hoped she was still living. She had attended my sister's wedding in 1994, so I had some leads. I found an email address and pleaded with her to contact me. She was happy to hear from me. We talked on the phone, and she had only nice things to say about my mother. She offered a little more information, telling me that mom's grandmother actually encouraged mom to marry an older man with money. She also described a cocktail party at our house where dad, at age 57, proudly announced that mom was pregnant with her fourth child, my younger brother. Mom's cousin also confirmed that she had placed the baby for adoption and shared in confidence why she was staying with our family. She had become pregnant due to her sexual assault and kept that and the pregnancy secret from her immediate family. Dad actually helped her concoct a reasonable story. He had his connections in Washington and got her a job interview with the FBI. Of course, she never went on the interview. It was all a ruse, to shield, the secret that she had been raped and was pregnant. She was now overwhelmed to find that her possible daughter was looking for her. At age 80, she never had any other children, and she had been a widow for nearly a decade. They were both skeptical at first, but I encouraged them to communicate. I also suggested that my Colorado adoptee match on 23andMe go ahead with her plan to test on ancestry since my mother's cousin already had done so. Within a few weeks and after 58 years, we confirmed the mother-daughter match. They talk by phone at least once a week now, and their relationship is growing. They plan to meet in person eventually. It was all very emotional. I was very happy for them, and they called me a miracle. Mom's 80-year-old cousin was stunned, still trying to take ownership of all this. After 58 years, she suddenly had a daughter and several adult grandchildren baffled about what to do next. I offered her some emotional support and encouragement and some more focused internet resources I had found on adoption reunions. She was able to slow down and pace herself, taking it one day at a time and to begin the larger the larger process of allowing herself to feel the multitude of complex feelings, sorting them out, adjusting and settling into an unimaginable new chapter of her family story. That's it.
1: Oh John, I just feel honored to have heard your story. Thank you so much for your vulnerability. Hmm. I feel so much compassion for you. I just, I wanted to give you a hug when you were talking about your childhood. Mm. I have to turn my video on for a moment just so you can see, so you can see my face. I, I actually wanted, I actually wanted to go and give my sons a hug when I was listening to you talk about your childhood. Oh, I'm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing this with me. You are a miracle for being able to help your mother's cousin with their mm. adoption reunion. That is, mm. now that I've become an NPE myself, I've learned so much and identified so much with the adoptees and donor-conceived individuals as well. hmm John, if people wanted to get in touch with you, how could they do that?
0: Well, they can go to that email um, address, which would be my mother's ghosts, plural, all one word, at gmail.com.
1: <laughs> I will put your email in the show notes, the link for that. I'm also mm-hmm. going to link your article. And thank you so much for talking about intergenerational trauma and how it's passed mm-hmm. down. I, that is one thing I'm learning in my own NPE story. And I think a lot of us have that. And I know that's mentioned in your article as well.
0: I just want to thank you for creating the space for, for me and everybody else who has something to, to share, you know, about this experience.
1: Thank you so much, John. And John, just after listening to your story and feeling feeling so comfortable with you and your vulnerability, I've also noticed that you appear as one of the NPE therapists. There's about maybe 30 of them now on I might have to double check this website, but on the MPE Counseling Collective. Are you available? Are you is that something that you are still doing?
0: Yeah, I and mean, people could look me up there and they can uh you know check up on me, I guess. <laughs>
1: I will link subject. that as well if you're if you're comfortable with that. I will link. Sure. Okay. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much for for everything today. I really appreciate this.
0: You're welcome. Um, I hope you have a great new year.
1: These stories are here for us to identify with. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, email npestories at gmail.com. You do not have to give any identifying information. If you are an NPE and would like to share your story, I'd like to hear from you. Subscribe to this podcast to hear more. Come heal with us.